0: Father, we thank you for all the wonderful resources that we have that we may grow in grace and the knowledge of you. But we thank you for the book, the Holy Bible. Thank you that it is your word and it is you that we seek to hear from as we open your word, that your spirit would take up these words and drive them into our hearts, that you would shape us as a people for your glory. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, tomorrow the alarm will go off somewhere between 6 and 7 in the morning and you'll be off another working week. Now, what is it that's going to motivate you to get up out of your beds tomorrow morning? Why is it that you're going to go to work? Now, our retired friends are feeling very smug. They're (laughs) saying... Oh yes, we remember those days and we'll be praying for you when we eventually do get up too. Uh, But for the rest of us who are paying your pensions, um, what what is motivating you to get up in the morning? Maybe you love work. Maybe you've got an exciting and fulfilling job. Maybe your your, your job makes a positive difference um, within the society, and you, you just can't wait to get back to it. You've got an exciting project you're working on. You can't wait to get to it. Maybe you're like uh, those young sort of thrusting people on The Apprentice who, who, are, who are hungry for success. You've got a career plan. You want to make millions, and you just can't wait to get back at it. But you know, the truth is, for many of us, work's really not that exciting, is it? Not quite as exciting as that. There are more basic motivations for going to work, like putting food on the table for our family. Uh, there are, there's rent or a mortgage to be paid. Uh, there are loans. There are credit card bills that must be paid. Unless you are independently wealthy, you go to work because you must go to work to earn money. You're not that thrilled about your job? And uh, you can echo that little quip from Oscar Wilde that you know that the best way to appreciate your job is to imagine yourself without one. Well, that's true for many of us, maybe. Now, my Christian brothers and sisters, what difference should our faith make uh, as we consider the workplace, as we think about that alarm bell that's going to go off again tomorrow morning? Uh, we have the same basic needs as everybody else in Edinburgh. Uh, but what is it that really motivates us as employees? Now, I want to suggest that if we have a, a healthy doctrine of God, that that will make a huge difference as we think about being employees this week. The Bible has a lot to say about work, but we're going to focus in on two verses from Titus this morning. So please open your Bibles. We've been working through the book of Titus. If you're visiting today, you'll find the book of Titus on page 1,199 in the Church Bibles, 1199. And we're just going to focus, really, on two verses this morning. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, page 1199. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them. Not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them. But to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is God's word. Now, the most obvious thing to note here is that we're living in a different time and a different culture to the first century. Thankfully, in Edinburgh, most of us are not forced to work as slaves, although you might have a sneaking suspicion that your boss views you in that way. The estimate is that there were as many as um, 50 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That at this time in Rome itself, a third of the population would have been slaves. And so there would have been many slaves who would have been part of those churches in Crete that Paul is writing to Titus about. And, and Paul has been addressing, and we've been considering over the past few weeks, uh, what godly living looks like for older men. Younger men, older women, younger women. And then he turns to the other part of the household at that time, the slaves. What does godly living look like for slaves? Now, let's be clear slavery is a form of tyranny, it blights every culture that practices it. And while slavery in uh, first century Rome, the Roman Empire, was quite different to slavery as we read about it in American history it still was a dehumanizing status. Slaves were treated as possessions. They could be bought and sold. They had no workers' rights. There were no unions. Uh, There were no laws for their protection. The master, basically, if he wanted the slave to keep going, had to provide a roof over their heads, had to provide food for their table, but basically could treat them uh, as cruelly as they wanted to uh, and be coercive without any uh, impunity, without any danger to them. Now, the New Testament has often been criticized for not actually coming out and directly seeking to abolish slavery. But I think that misunderstands what a huge widespread social issue it was at that time. But what we have to say is that the teaching of the New Testament contains... All the ideas that fundamentally undermine the practice of slavery. And so it was that it was uh, Christians who led the charge to the abolition of the slave trade in the 19th century here in Britain. It was because of their Christian convictions from the Bible that they sought to undermine the very practice of slavery. Now having made those little side notes about slavery, let's just focus in on the actual content Uh, If that is the context of of slavery in the first century, if Paul commanded practical godliness for these slaves in that context, I want to suggest that we could learn some principles here about being godly employees in uh, the modern workplace. Let me give you the big idea of this sermon. Uh, Christian employees work in a godly way to adorn the gospel for the glory of Christ. Let me say that again: Christian employees work in a godly way to adorn the gospel for the glory of Christ. That is, um, we have a very different reason for working than those who are not Christians. That's what we're going to think about today. So Christians will will turn up to work tomorrow, just like everybody else in Scotland. And uh, the truth is that Christians are found in every sort of role in life In this church, we have, I just, I think, the list could go on, but we have doctors, we have nurses, we have scientists, we have nightclub bouncers, we have tour guides, we have bus drivers, we have lawyers, we have dentists, we have housewives, we have teachers, we have bankers, we have bakers, we have civil servants, we have opticians, we have carpenters, we have art curators, we have fund managers, we have cleaners, we have mechanics, we have managers, we have people who work... Uh, in in, in, uh, firemen, policemen and women. We have um, TV cameramen, we have professors, we have people who work in taxation and we could keep going on. The the point I'm making is that Christians are involved in every sort of area and role uh, in society. And if we were to come to the workplace and take a picture of a Christian and a non-Christian doing the job, it would look... Exactly the same. So what's different? The different is that the Christian believer has a different motivation and a different master. A different motivation and a different master. Let's think about the motivation. Christians work to adorn the gospel. Have a look at the second half of verse 10. So that in every way They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. See, the Christian goes about his work knowing that the most precious thing is not his job or career, nor is it his money or his status, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He he is the most precious thing. And and that is what verse 10 is referring to. That's who verse 10 is referring to as God, our Savior. Just look at verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the Christian is someone who's come to see that the Jesus of history was God come in human flesh. That God had come in Jesus as our Savior to rescue us from our sin. To rescue us from being lost, far off from God. To uh, rescue us from God's anger because of our rebellion and our sin. That Jesus came to give his perfect life as a sacrifice in the place of our sinful lives. That he came to show us what it, what it means to be truly human. That, that we should reflect and, and through what Jesus has done can reflect the glory of God to the world as we are created in his image. Christians have come to realize that Jesus is, is the Lord of all things, that he is the one who is returning to restore all things. And the Christian is someone who has responded to this wonderful message by repenting of their sins, turning away from their rebellion in order to trust Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. And, and so fundamentally, you see, the Christian is someone who knows that Jesus is at the very center of their lives. That his gospel is the very basis that motivates the whole of his life. Every aspect of life. And of course that includes work, which we're considering today. The Christian goes to work with this central motivation to make much of Jesus Christ. That's why the Christian goes to work. Because he wants to make much of Jesus Christ. That in every way that he engages with his work, he does so with the desire that the gospel, this good news of Jesus, may be seen to be attractive because of the impact that it has on his life or her life. Now we've been thinking about this image of the picture frame, haven't we, over the last few weeks. Um, The gospel is the most beautiful picture of uh, God's grace and glory. The picture is jesus it displays the glory of god and yet our lives are like the frame that goes around the picture a great work of art has to be held up to be seen and our lives are like the frame that holds up the 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 glorious picture of the glory of god and the face of jesus up to the world Now the truth is, is that uh, a picture frame can either enhance the work of art and attract people to come up and and gaze into its content, or it can actually be so ugly, uh, so unattractive, that people can't even look at the picture because they're going, oh, what an ugly frame, look at that, who thought about that? And God has chosen to put each one of us in all these different places, these different roles in life, so that we can draw people to this saving gospel. So we can be the means that other people want to look at, what is it about this life that they can be drawn to see the beauty of God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian has a different motivation for work than a non-Christian. The Christian goes to work in part because he wants to adorn the gospel. Now that's, that's the different motivation. There's also a different master as we go about our work. Let me give you one New Testament cross-reference for this. Keep your finger in Titus and turn back to Colossians chapter 3. You'll find that on page 1183. 1,100 and actually 84. Let's turn over the page. 1,184. that's Colossians chapter 3 and we're going to look at a sentence with the number 22 there 1-1-8-4 and as I read this notice that that three times Paul reminds the slave to consider their work as ultimately a service to the Lord Jesus Christ verse 22 slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That's number one. Number two, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for man. That's the second one. Third one, verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord. Christ you are serving who do you think you're really working for Uh, who is your boss at work who's your line manager well we should always work to recognize those in authority over us but really only with our eyes on the one who's in ultimate authority who do you go to work for if you're a Christian you got to work for Jesus you got to work for the Lord Jesus Christ now, does this not transform how we view our work? Last week, we considered on Reformation Sunday. Terrific to have Reformation Sunday. Happens to be on the same day as Halloween, but Reformation Sunday is what it is. Uh, we considered Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther developed this a lot in his thinking. He was approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve the Lord. And Luther asked him, Well, what's your work now? And the man replied, I'm a shoemaker. And much to the cobbler's surprise, Luther replied, then make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. And what he was saying is this, is that we can serve God in all the different ways that we can serve and be useful in life. The Reformation captured this sense that the whole of life could be a vocation, not just going to become a a priest or a, a sort of a religious person. The whole of life could be lived, and the whole of work could be engaged with as a service to God. And so if you're a cobbler, you could glorify God by making a good shoe and selling it at a fair price. The world is full of opportunities to serve God, not only in the church, but in the home, in the workplace, wherever that is, whether that's a hospital or a school or a Law firm or a bank or wherever we're working. And uh, he gives this example of uh, of a domestic maid. And Luther uh, once said this, that she should be able to have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I am cooking, making the bed, sweeping the house. Who has commanded me to do these things? My master and mistress have. Who has given them this authority over me? God has. Very well then, it must be true that I am serving not them alone, but also God in heaven. And that God must be pleased with my service. How could I possibly be more blessed with why my service is equal to cooking for God in heaven? Isn't that a transforming view of work? So the alarm goes off. And we groan that the morning has come too to soon. So, tomorrow, I want you to remember this. You, we have an opportunity to go to work for the glory of Christ and to adorn the gospel. And do you know what? This really is the main evangelistic strategy in the Bible. Um, great campaigns are great. You know, evangelists taking over stadiums, that's fine. But you know, it only really works if this happens. That people engage in their workplace, day in, day out, week in, uh, week out, with this vision that they will live for the glory of Christ and that they will adorn the gospel. So how are we to do that? How do we do that in the workplace? Should we be doing literature distribution? walking up to each person and sharing the gospel throughout the day? Should we be um, jumping on our desks and holding an impromptu um, service to the surprise staff? Um, Should we be playing uh, Christian radio or sermons on our computer or our laptop as loud as they can so that those in our neighboring booths can hear the message of the gospel? Is that how we should do that? Well, come back to Titus chapter 2. And notice with me, that that is not how we adorn the gospel. Come back to Titus chapter 2. We adorn the gospel by living godly lives. So I want to look at three practical points of how uh, we can be a Christian employee this week who adorns the gospel. Point number one, we adorn the gospel by being submissive. Beginning of verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to... To their masters in everything. Titus is to teach slaves that are Christians to be the best slaves their masters could wish for. If their master is not a Christian and he hears that their slave has become a Christian, he should actually see that the way that that has changed the person's life means that he's really pleased that his slave is a Christian. Why? His attitude has changed completely. He's a different person. He's a great slave. He's one of the best ones I've got. A Christian has every motivation from the gospel to seek to humbly serve those in authority over them to the best of their ability. They can be motivated by the fact that they are ultimately serving Christ. And so we shouldn't be worried by that phrase there in in verse 9. The lawyers amongst us are already quibbling about this. I can hear it. I can hear them almost thinking, In everything? In everything? Be subject? Really? And I think Paul's great concern, of course, in this section, is godliness of life. And so I don't think Paul meant that that should include wrongdoing. Being subject in everything would not include engaging in crime or sin if if instructed by their master. Do you remember when the apostles were freed from uh, prison by the Jewish authorities and they were warned not to go and talk about Jesus anymore? Uh, They replied in this way, We must obey God rather than men. The command to be subject to human authorities is always underneath the authority of serving Christ. And so if your boss tells you to do something that the Lord Jesus has told you not to do, then we have to say to our earthly boss, "No," and be willing to face the consequences. You know, as employees, we basically enter into a voluntary contract, don't we? With a a company, with a business uh, owner, that we will work for them to fulfill certain tasks and uh, we receive a certain amount of money. And so we get paid weekly or monthly with the expectation that we will fulfill this task, this job that we've been assigned. Now, Christian employees should be marked by the submissive way that they seek to work hard at their workplaces. Put it simply, godly Christians are good workers. That's what's being said here. They listen carefully to what their boss uh, wants and then they do it. And they work just as hard when the boss is not around as when they do when he is around. Now, if you're an employee and a Christian here today, let me ask you a few questions. Are you a a godly employee? Do you do what is expected of you or are you shirking your responsibilities? Are you consistently on time for work, for example? Uh, Do you listen carefully to what uh, you've been told to do? Do you complete the tasks as you've been told? And if you have grievances or or suggestions, do you state them in a submissive and a respectful way? I think this teaching is is countercultural. I think many people try to do as little work as possible and still keep their job. But we as Christians have a a very different motive for living quite alternatively to that. I I heard about the website called... um, can't you see I'm busy.com? And someone's invested a lot of time thinking of certain games that you can download onto your screens. Games that look like you're working with a spreadsheet. Games that look like you're working with a word processor when in fact you're really just messing around and playing a game. Now don't be, you're thinking about checking it, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, the, the point of this sermon is don't, that, that's not really not. Territory for us, unless it's in your break time, you know? Unless it's in your, maybe you can look like you busy during your break time. I don't know. I want to suggest to you that if you're excellent, a solitaire, that might not be a good sign as a Christian. That might not be a good sign of a great employee. Secondly, practically, Christian employees adorn the gospel by attempting to please. Second half of verse 9. To try to please them, not to talk back to them. Now this just goes a bit deeper, doesn't it, than doing what your master says. This command speaks about having the right sort of attitude as you work. Christian slaves should actively take initiative to try to please their owners. That's what's being taught here. They should actively be thinking, how can I please my master? And should be careful in their speech, not to be grumblers, not to be always mouthing off. Now, as we think of the modern day context of work, um, there's clearly a helpful way to do this and an unhelpful way to do this. Nobody likes a sycophant. No one likes someone who's always sucking up to the boss. Uh, Nobody respects that, and that probably doesn't adorn the gospel. But a godly employee is someone who is actively looking out for the welfare of the company, of the business, of their boss. And if you're a Christian here today, is this how you go about your work? Um, are you looking for ways to fulfill the goals of your company and not just focused on your specific job? Or are you one of those people who are always saying, well, that's not my job. Or that's not my problem. Well, that's how the world treats jobs. It seems to me as Christians, we're actually trying to encourage to think about how we can work to place to engage positively how do we talk about um, our boss an organization when we're at an event uh, on behalf of the organization are we a positive voice in the workplace or are we always negative nippy and critical now there's a stunning example of um, a, a slave attempting to please in 2 Kings chapter 5 it was our Old Testament reading did you notice that? Naaman, the commander of the foreign army that attacked the nation of Israel, and during that time captured this young girl uh, who he made a servant to his wife. Now how embittering such an experience would have been. Can you think about that? You You were taken in a raid away from your family. We don't know what happened to the parents, but you're dragged away and put into forced labor. How bitter that would be. And yet when Naaman contracted leprosy, which at that time was an incurable, disfiguring disease, something that uh, meant you became isolated from the rest of society, this, this servant girl, instead of going, Yes, he got what he deserved, which would have been the natural response, I guess, she shared the news with her mistress That there was actually a prophet back in Israel who could cure him. Here was a girl who actually wanted to please her master. And there was something about the integrity of her life that they believed her and that they went, which led to meeting Elisha, which led to this extraordinary cure and his conversion to the God of Israel with that amazing statement, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So here's a slave girl in her work context living in the fear of the Lord and through her humble witness, a great man like Naaman is led to confess that there is no other God except the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Thirdly, Christian employees adorn the gospel by earning trust. Verse 10. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Now, being a slave would no doubt have presented many temptations to be unhappy with your lot, as well as uh, presenting you with some great opportunities to uh, get even with some petty theft. I don't know, maybe pilfering could be seen as one of the perks of the job, I don't know. But now as Christians, these slaves are being urged to show how trustworthy they could be around their master's business and home. It takes time to show you can be trusted, doesn't it? It takes time. And godly employees over time will seek to earn their employers' trust to demonstrate that they're dependable and trustworthy to their employers. How are are we doing in our workplaces? Are we honest in our activities? Can our words be trusted? Uh, Do we deliver what we say we're going to do? Do we legitimately use our time uh, that the company is paying us for? Or do we use it illegitimately for ourselves? Do we legitimately use the company equipment and materials and resources for the benefit of the company? Or do we use it for ourselves? It seems to me if we understand what the Bible is saying here, adorning the gospel will mean that we will not use company time to distribute gospel tracts. We won't be using up other people's work time talking about the gospel. Adoring the gospel means we will not act like that. That would be a sure way of bringing dishonor to Christ as we rob the company of time. Do you remember the uh, other famous slave of the Old Testament, Joseph? Consider his life in this way. Sold into slavery through the jealousy of his brothers, and yet became so trusted by his master Potiphar that everything was put under his control. And while the master was away, uh, uh, his wife, the master's wife, began to offer herself to him. She wanted an affair, and he consistently kept his integrity, and he refused to do anything wicked against his master. Now why? Why was that? Well, because he knew he had a greater master. And he says this to her, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? That is the master that Joseph was ultimately working for. And even as he held his integrity and honesty, he was rewarded with prison time off the back of false allegations by a spurned woman. And then even in prison, he served with such integrity there and wisdom that the the head warder actually kind of Held him with honor, gave him great responsibilities. And where did that eventually lead? It led to him being elevated to the number two job in the whole of Egypt, uh, where God used him to not only save and prosper Egypt, but to save his own family. And it all came about because of what? Because he lived a godly life in his workplace, (laughs) even as a slave when he had every reason to feel grievance, every reason to feel that he could grumble, he lived his life in such a godly way that it resulted in him being in a place where he could end up bringing salvation to others. Well, that's what we're talking about here in Titus chapter 2. That's exactly it. That we live our lives in such a godly way that we adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by simple things like being submissive like attempting to please by earning trust now I, I want to suggest to you that in these difficult economic times these are probably good tips for keeping your job but that's not the motive behind obeying this the motive is that, that, that we work in a godly way to adorn the gospel for the glory of Christ that's what we're about and the way we work this week could cause people to ask us why are you different why are you different you know coming up to Easter we're going to have a passion for life uh, uh, missions week where we're going to have Roger Carswell speaking each evening and there'll be opportunities to invite people if we live credible lives in the workplace where our, our lives match up with what we say when we actually come round to the point of inviting someone, maybe, would you like to come and hear uh, about um, the Christian faith? Our lives should be sufficiently adoring the gospel to say, actually, I would be interested to know what makes you tick. I've been observing your life now. I, I want to know what makes you tick. It would be tragic, isn't it, if we, in our workplace we were talking about the gospel, saying all the Christian stuff, handing out leaflets. But actually our lives had so little integrity that when we came to invite someone, they would say, huh, I want nothing of your message, nothing of your Jesus. Your, your life doesn't fit with it. My friends, we're going to see uh, as we head into chapter three that this is a life that we can live by the power of the Spirit. Uh, this is not just pull your bootstraps up. This is a life we live empowered by the Spirit, but we'll have to wait till Chapter Three to get there, because the Christian life is someone who has experienced the washing of rebirth, of renewal of the Holy Spirit, as it says. Do you know, tomorrow could be quite an exciting day, couldn't it? The alarm is going to go off again, and we get an opportunity to shine for Jesus to adorn the gospel. The way we live this week at work, the way that we engage in our work could be the very means that someone who's not right now a Christian in your workplace could be standing on the final day praising the Lord Jesus for the glorious salvation that they received because they got a simple invite and they followed it up because they observed your life. What an exciting week this could be. What an exciting year. God could use us for his glory. Let's pray, shall we? Our gracious God, we want to thank you that your word touches um, every aspect of our lives. And we thank you that we can engage in whatever work that we will have this week and serve with our eyes on the Lord Jesus, knowing that we can ultimately, we're serving him. And so Father, we ask your forgiveness for ways that we have not adorned the gospel. We thank you that the grace of the Lord Jesus covers every sin. And we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit this week, that we may live lives that are different, that may cause others to ask, what is the reason for the hope that we have? Uh, We ask that we would be able to have an influence on this city in the different realms and workplaces that we have, that Christ would be glorified, that people would be saved. Father, we ask this in his precious name. Amen.